Okay, I'm going to start with a, a picture. I'm curious, do any of you actually know, besides Les, I, I assume Les knows what this is, any, anyone else know what this picture is? Once it comes up. <laughs> yeah. Does anybody know what that is? It is. Do you know what it is? This is off a ship. This is, this is markings that you'll see on the side of ships. It's called, it's called the Plimsoll Mark. It didn't used to be on ships back in the 1800s. But thank God there was a man named Samuel Plimsoll. That's why it's called the Plimsoll Mark. It comes from him. He had this burden to save lives. You see, you need to understand something about Samuel Plimsoll. He, he was involved in a coal trade during the 1800s in England. And as a result, he became aware of the terrible dangers that faced the sailors of that day. Every year, hundreds of seamen lost their lives on the ships because the ships were dangerously overloaded. Greedy ship owners were willing to put lives at risk. Ships loaded almost to the deck line would, would leave ports and end up foundering at sea. Many of them capsized, sunk, and as a result, many died. Owners didn't care, by the way, because they ended up making more money off insurance. So they didn't care about the lives of the people or their what happened to their boats, per se. In 1873, 411 ships sank. Just in that one year alone, 411 ships. So you times that by however many sailors would be on those boats. So it took hundreds of, of men to their watery graves as a result. And to make matters worse, uh, from my understanding, is if, if a man actually signed up for that particular voyage, he could not back out of it, no matter uh, how unsafe he considered the ship to be. The law firmly supported the ship owners, made it a crime to jump ship. In fact, in the year, in, in, the, in the 1870s there, it was said uh, that in, in, in southern, south, particularly southwest England, those uh, particular ports there where a lot of the ships went from, that uh, one out of every three prisoners in southwest England was a sailor because he had refused to sail on these ships that had been developed a name called coffin ships. They were called coffin ships because if you went on those ships, you had a very high chance of dying. <laughs> and so this particular problem became Samuel Plimsoll's mission. His idea was simple, to put a marks on the side of the ships. And so you'll see here, they, they have different marks for, for different kinds of situations, different times of the year, different, different kinds of water. So if it was fresh water, different mark. Salt water, different mark. Different times of the year. If you're in the tropics, it was different. And so that was, that was his idea. And so every ship needed a, a load line. It was indicating when that particular cargo ship was overloaded. And so with that solution in mind, Plimsoll ended up running for parliament in England in the year 1868, and he was elected. Immediately he began this very intense campaign to save the lives of the British sailors. Gradually, he, it, it was a long, hard slog for him, but it, he ended up shaming the government of that day into taking action, and he wrote a bill. 
eventually in time, his load lines became the international standard. And so you can go all around the world today, in every port in the world, uh, you will see on the, on the sides of these cargo ships these lines. Well, they're supposed to be, anyway, because it's now an international standard. This is a result of Plimsoll's work. And so these lines indicate the maximum depth to which a ship can be safely and load, uh, legally loaded. Why am I telling you that? Because as I was reading about Samuel Plimsoll and these Plimsoll marks, it made me think of us as believers. If we're, if we're a believer, life would be a lot easier if there were Plimsoll marks for people. Some people go through life without marks in their life, and so as a result, they, they, they try to navigate through life, and they end up capsizing, they end up sinking, they end up becoming shipwrecked. Just like Paul, Paul mentions the very names of some people in the book of Timothy. These, these men, were, their faith was shipwrecked. How is that? How do, how do people do that? How does that happen? Well, there, there is good news that I can tell you, because the Bible does give us marks. So what I want to do is today we're going to look at God's safeguards that are going to help us navigate life through this world. And we have a very important one mentioned here. Because one of the things that's destroying Jesus Christ's church today is this very thing that we're, we're going to talk about here in 1 John 2, verse 15. This isn't necessarily going to be an expository message. It's but uh, I want, I want to, it's more of a topical message today. But look at this, this command here in 1 John 2.15. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It says, Do not love the world, it says. And by the way, if that's not enough, it says, Or the things in the world. Now, I'll explain what that means in a moment, but in the Greek language, you need to understand the, the word love there is agape. That's, that's God-like love. It's an unconditional, sacrificial kind of a love. It's not the, the, the gooey, you know, emotional, uh, so-called uh, Hollywood, you know, romance novel kind of a love here. This is agape love, and it's, in the Greek, it's a, a present active imperative just means you are to you are to continually do this throughout your whole life. It's not an option. We have to do this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now you might be asking, well, how do I know if I'm guilty of this sin of worldliness? Because if you love the world with this agape love, the Bible says you're guilty of worldliness. So how do, how do I know if I'm guilty of this sin? Well, to avoid being worldly, some people might say, well, you know, they might ask, well, do I need to join the community of Gloria Vale? They've been in the documentaries on TV, and here's a picture of some of them. Gloria Vale is a community down there on the South Island of New Zealand. Uh, you might say, well, do I need to join that community so that I can avoid the sin of worldliness? 
in some respects, you have to commend them for trying to not be worldly. But as we're going to see in this particular, what the Bible says, worldliness is not something you do on the outside. The outside just reveals, are you worldly on the inside? See, you can live in Gloryville and still be worldly. You can't. Because worldliness is something in your heart. And that's pretty radical. You know, they've, they've pretty much almost taken themselves exclusively out of this world to try not to be worldly. But remember, Jesus says, be in the world, just don't be of it. So obviously that's not the solution. And so some, some have said, well, joining the community of Gloryville is pretty radical. Well, maybe, how, how about let's go a next step? Maybe I'll become exclusive brethren. You know, become exclusive brethren so that way I won't be worldly. Is that the solution? And the answer is no. Short answer is no. You don't have to join Glory Vale or become exclusive brethren or become some nun or monk or whatever. You know, there's other ways of doing that. So to kind of illustrate this, I've heard it said this way before. Like, right, we were just talking about the plimsoll mark keeping ships afloat so they don't sink. But let's use the ship as an illustration. A ship in the water is okay, as long as the water doesn't go in the ship, right? Right? The, The problem is not the ship in the water. That doesn't constitute the danger, does it? What constitutes the danger is when the water enters the ship. That's what sinks the ship. And that's what sinks us. See, Jesus says, be in the world, just don't let the world in you. Right? So we've got to keep the world out of us. We're not to love the world in this respect. So it's, 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 it's the world or the water in us that constitutes the danger. And by the way, it would, it would help to recognize that we are all at risk here. All right? Me included. All right? I want to actually exhort you and encourage you in this message. I don't want to beat you up because we all struggle with this. It, it's difficult to live in the world and not love it. And, and to show you that we're all at risk here, I want to introduce you to a very tragic character in the Bible by the name of Demas. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about Demas. Apostle Paul writes about him just a couple times. You need to understand, Demas was a close friend and a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Demas went on Paul's first missionary journey. He participated in the spread of the gospel. He he was involved in the strengthening of young churches throughout the Roman Empire. Here was somebody who put his life on the line. He left his home, his family, his his job, whatever that was, to, to travel with the Apostle Paul. That's dangerous stuff. Not easy. He, he traveled the long, dusty, and dangerous roads of the Roman Empire to spread the gospel, to establish churches with Paul. He stood by Paul, likely at great personal risk. You could die by doing that. And so Demas would appear to be a model Christian. But I want you to notice in Paul's last book that he ever wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here's what he says. I've got the verse on the, on the screen here for you. This is the last thing that I'm aware of that Paul ever wrote about Demas. It says, Demas, 
in love with this present world has deserted me. I don't know about you, but every time I read that, it just kicked, I, I feel like I've been kicked in the guts. It's, it's heartbreaking. It's a tragedy. It's a wasted life. And I can't help but wonder if Demas went to hell when he died. We don't know the rest of the story. So I, I hope he's in heaven. I hope he repented and came to Christ. But, but at this point, we have a ruined testimony. And, it, and it's, it's worse than just the fact that Demas deserted the Apostle Paul. Demas deserted Jesus Christ. What happened to Demas? How did Demas go from being a passionate follower of Jesus Christ to a deserter of Jesus Christ? How does that happen? And you need to understand something. Before Demas deserted, that's the end result, at this point anyway, how do you get to that point? It happens from drifting. See, this is not something that was immediate. It didn't just happen in a single day. This happened over weeks, maybe even years. It was a gradual contamination of Demas's heart, and eventually Demas's heart became conformed to this world, which, of course, the Bible says we're not to allow ourselves to be conformed to this world, because look at this. Romans 12, verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world. That's a command. In other words, don't allow yourself to be pressed into the world's mold. Don't allow yourself to love it and when, when, you, when you love it, then you end up looking like it, talking like it, thinking like it. The solution, by the way, is found in the very same verse here. Romans 12, 2 says, But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's where the battle is. It's in your mind, in your heart. You gotta, and it's a continual process. Because your enemies are going to keep coming after you. They're not going to give up. So, let's be clear. How does this happen? This is how it happens, my friends. At some point, Demas let go of Jesus. He let go of Jesus. And by that, I just mean uh, he stopped loving Jesus. His heart grew cold to Jesus. The, the flames of Demas' heart went out. And as you let go of Jesus, then you start drifting and the world will just keep carrying you away farther and farther from Jesus and to the point where you then become form, you, you become conformed to the world. That's what happened to Demas. And by the way, we need to understand how that happens because that's the danger for us. Jesus is the rock. We've got to hold on to the rock, the thing that, that is not moving in the midst of this world as it just keeps going past the rock. The danger is we let go of the rock, Jesus Christ, and, it, and when that happens, then you get taken downstream. What are the symptoms of worldliness? As I said, it starts by you just stop loving Jesus. Your heart grows cold. The, the fire goes out. You're, you don't love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength, and being. So how do you know if you're worldly? 
I've seen, sadly, I've seen this happen too often where a person just lets go of Jesus, they start drifting. At first, they don't stop coming to church. They'll, they'll, they'll sit there in the pew. I've seen it happen where they'll sit, they'll sit in the same seats that you sit in. But eventually, they, even though they're coming to church, they, they're not excited about being here. She sings the songs, but without affection in her heart for God. He listens to the preaching, but is no longer convicted. He's only a hearer, but not a doer of the word. She hears the message, but doesn't apply the word of God to her life. And a love for the world begins in, to, to sink into the soul. The conscience becomes dull. That's how it happens. I've seen it happen, and eventually the person no longer goes to church. I've seen people who come, used to be excited about God and His Word, and then, they, and then their faces change. The heart grows cold. It's sad. It's kind of like the frog that's slowly boiled in water. There's kind of a funny little comic here, but this is, this is, this is true, by the way. You can slowly boil a frog, but if you threw a frog into boiling water, the frog would jump out. But if you put the frog in cold water, slowly crank up the heat, eventually the frog will, will, will enjoy it to the point where it can die and its blood starts to boil and it can die. It's a good illustration for what, what happens to us. We, can, we have the same danger of being in this world where the world just kind of slowly creeps into our hearts and we die from the inside out. So like the frog, Demas' sin didn't grieve him like it once did. The passion for the Savior began to cool. Godliness slowed to a snail's pace and eventually Demas was taken captive by sin. How about you, my friends? Ever happened to you? Has it happened to you? Do you love the world? Well, I need to explain the world, I guess, to us so we understand, are we in danger of this sin? So here's the question to think about. What world are we not to love? There's some confusion on this, so let me be clear. What world are we not to love? Now, I'm going to start with the negative, as I often do, and then we'll talk about that particular world that we're not to love. Because there are some things that you might classify as world that is okay for you to love. So let's be clear, because world is a multifaceted term. It's okay to have an enjoyment for planet Earth. It's okay to love the created order that God has made. It's okay... Uh, to enjoy the blessings that come from living in a modern society. It's okay to have some enjoyment of technology and so forth. right? After all, the Bible says in Genesis 1, verse 31, that God created the world, and when He did, He declared it very good. Very good. God didn't make it evil. It was very good. So it's okay to enjoy planet Earth and the created order and blessings that come from living in a modern society, right? It's, it's, it's nice to have flushing toilets and running water and heat in our homes during the winter and so forth, right? Blessings, aren't they? It's also okay, as we think about this world, 
This is not talking about economic and social structures of society. By all means, love your family. It's okay to enjoy your vocation and have an enjoyment for, for government. Those sort of things that God has given us are blessings. After all, Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So what is this world that we're not to love? Well, the world that 1 John 2.15 is talking about here is the world of this organized system of human civilization that is actively hostile to God. The, the cosmos that is alienated from God. The world that God forbids us to love is the fallen world. Not the one that He made, that He declared to be very good. But this is humanity that is at enmity against God. As James 4 talks about, if we're friends with the world, we're adulterers and adulteresses. We're loving something else. Our love has, instead of being for God, has gone to something else and we become adulterers and adulteresses. So what is worldliness? Worldliness is a love for this fallen world. It's loving the values, the pursuits of a world that is actually opposed to God. More specifically, it's to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. So, are we clear? This is not an outward thing. Right? It's not an outward thing. It, it re, this is, worldliness rejects God's rule in our hearts. It replaces it with our own rule. Essentially, what you're doing is, if you're a worldly person, you're making your own Bible. You've, you've just written your own Bible and you're following it. That's what a worldly person is. Now, we need to be aware of two ditches. Often there's, as we try to be balanced, we can... We can oversteer. It's like, have you ever driven down the road and you hit a slick spot on the road and, and, and the car's starting to go off the road and you, you turn the steering wheel maybe a little too much and when the, the wheels on your car actually grip the road, you end up finding yourself going in the other ditch? It happens to people all the time. They oversteer. But it happens in, Christian, in our Christian lives too. And so there's two ditches that we can fall into here and, and there they are legalism and libertinism so in our, in our attempt to be balanced where we're, we're not worldly we can we can become legalists like gloria vale or the exclusive brethren and they think well if i just dress up the outside and i have i have all these standards in my life that'll protect my heart from being worldly but it doesn't necessarily work you can still be worldly on the inside, even when you live in a community like Gloryville or go to exclusive brethren churches. The other ditch you can fall into is you become a libertine. Libertinism is, well, we'll just throw off all constraints, all rules, all standards, because I don't want to be a legalist. And so then they fall in the ditch on the other side of the road. And they think, well, God doesn't really, you know, to God it doesn't matter what I do, so I can just do whatever I want. Well, of course God cares what we do. So those are two ditches, legalism and libertinism. God doesn't want us falling into either one of those. And some people try to 
define worldliness as living outside a specific set of rules or some conservative standards. For example, well, if, you know, if I don't listen to pop music or, you know, if I dress in fashionable clothes or, you know, if I, if I, if I don't watch movies with a, a certain rating, then I won't be worldly. Right? Those are just some examples. Some people think that way. Maybe you do. I don't know. But then there are some people who, who are irritated by rules. They just think rules are arbitrary. They don't really help me. They're not going to stop me from being worldly. And so they assume it's impossible to define worldliness. They think legalism is going to be the result if I have rules and standards. So those are the two ditches we need to be aware of. I hope that we can be balanced. So I hope you understand both views are wrong. Both views are wrong. Worldliness does not consist in outward behavior, though please understand your actions can be an evidence of worldliness in your heart. It can reveal what's inside of you. But the real location of worldliness is not external. The real location is internal. Worldliness resides in our hearts, and God makes that very clear in this text here. So let me show you the essence of worldliness found in 1 John 2.16. Look at this. There's three points that God makes here. Three points. Look at 1 John 2, verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world. What's that? What's worldliness? He says, verse 16, that's the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life. Those three things there is not from the Father, but is from the world. So what is the essence of worldliness? Number one, worldliness is sinful desires. Worldliness is sinful desires. These sinful desires, by the way, are legitimate desires, but what happens is they become false gods that we end up worshiping. It's okay to have desires. God gives us desires. See, a sinful, I'll give you some examples just so we're clear here, okay? A sinful desire is when a legitimate desire for financial success ends up becoming a silent demand. And you demand this from God. God, you must make me wealthy. You've just become worldly. Oh, and that's, that's a very prominent thing in the, in the faith movement today and the prosperity gospel. A lot of worldly people demanding that God make them wealthy. Or, here's another example. When, when your interest in clothes and fashions ends up becoming your preoccupation, where you're, you're just constantly shopping, you're constantly thinking about fashion, you're constantly looking at magazines, your mind is preoccupied with that, you've become worldly. That's a sinful desire. Or for some people, love of music becomes an obsession. You know, they, they, they can't live without their music. They've got to always have something in their ears or the headphones on or the radio going or something. You know, if they have two seconds of silence, they're going to die. Right? When they're that obsessed, they've become, that's a sinful desire. Now, there may be nothing wrong with these desires in and of themselves. Okay? But when they dominate our lives, what we've done is we've bowed to the idol of worldliness. So worldliness, according to 1 John 2.16, is sinful desires. 
Number two, worldliness is the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. The eyes, you need to understand, are a precious gift from God. God's not attacking your eyes. He made them. But those eyes that God has given to you are also a window to your soul. They provide opportunities for us to covet. Now, please don't limit this here to sexual sin. Some have done that, but that's not God's point. It's not limited just to sexual sin. Practically anything we see can stimulate greed in our souls. So what are you captivated by? What are you captivated by? If you're captivated by that thing, if your soul becomes greedy for something, that is a sign you have a lust of the eyes. What do you think most about? That, that might be a sign toward your lust of the eyes. So if you're more excited, for example, by the new movie coming out than about serving in your church, you probably have a lust of the eyes. If you're impressed by the athletes, regardless of their integrity and their morality, then you have been seduced by this fallen world. As you watch the Olympics the last couple weeks, did you even think about their integrity and their morality? Or do we just look at them and say, wow, that's amazing what they can do. (laughs) Hopefully we think a little bit deeper than that. If not, we can be guilty of the lust of the eyes. But the essence of worldliness goes beyond this. There's a third point. We see worldliness is boasting in and what you have and what you do. See, it's easy to take pride in various things of our life. For example, we we often find our identity in our work. And we'll boast in our work, what we do, our job, our vocation. Or, Or we might boast in our talents and our abilities, our physical appearance, our possessions, or even in our accomplishments, you know, or our degrees, our, our awards, or what it, whatever it might be, right? And when we do that, then we've just become worldly. We might be too polite to boast out loud, but secretly we might be celebrating what we have, what we've done in our hearts. And we might want others to notice, but we're just we got this false humility and we don't want to just say it out loud because we know we're not supposed to do that. But we, we, we must not define ourselves by anything that we possess. We must not define ourselves by what we accomplish in this world. Your identity is to be found in Christ. So worldliness is sinful desires. It's a lust of the eyes. It's boasting in what you have and you do. That's the essence of worldliness. But this text goes on to tell us what is the future for the world. And when you understand the future for the world, hopefully hopefully this will help keep you away from love for the world. Because look what verse 17 says. It says, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what's the future for the world? God says it's passing away. It's temporary. It's, it's in a continual process of disintegration. It's headed for destruction. In other words, there's no future. It's not something we should be investing in. 
But on, on the other hand, there is something that will last. There is something that is eternal. There is something that you should be investing in. There is something you should love. See, the opposite of worldliness, according to verse 17, is someone who does the will of God. Because verse 17 says that the world's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, those who follow God's will abide as His people forever. Why? Because God offers them eternal life. So how about you? How about you? Which one are you going to choose? Are you going to choose to be worldly? Or are you going to choose to be somebody who does the will of God? So are you going to pursue the deceptive, temporary pleasures of worldliness? Or are you going to do the will of God? Obey God's will, which contains, by the way, the promise of eternal life. Well, there's your options, my friends. There's your options. Which one are you going to do? Well, if you're like me and you find yourself at various points in your life guilty of the sin of worldliness, we need a solution. So what is the solution? We need to understand, well, first of all, that worldliness is a sin. It's not pleasing to God. We're not doing the will of God when we're worldly. And so we need something actually greater than that desire to, to defeat that sin. You've heard it said probably before that you must defeat sin with superior pleasure. See, you don't, you don't defeat sin by just telling yourself, don't do that. Right? What are you actually doing when you're saying, don't do that? I, I, I shouldn't do that. Don't do that. Don't think about that. I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to say that. What are you doing? You're, you're actually thinking about it, aren't you? You're actually meditating upon what the sin you're not supposed to do. So the solution is don't do that. It needs to be replaced. It needs to be replaced with superior pleasure. See, my friends, it's only through Christ that we can successfully resist the seduction of this fallen world. Christ is the superior pleasure. Here's the way John Owen said it. I'm, I quote him from John Owen here. When someone sets his affections upon the cross and the love of Christ, he crucifies the world as a dead and undesirable thing. The baits of sin lose their attraction and disappear. Fill your affections with the cross of Christ and you will find no room for sin. End quote. That's how you do it. You've got to find the superior pleasure to remove the meditations upon the sin. So what should consume our thoughts and affections is not resisting worldliness. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just going to be worldly if that's all you're meditating upon. But you've got to replace it with the glory of God. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ is most important. We've got to fight worldliness because it dulls our affections for Christ. It distracts our attention from Christ. Worldliness is a serious danger. In fact, it's so serious because Christ is so glorious. His fame, His glory is at stake here. I'll give you a biblical illustration. That for me, this has been helpful over the years. Now, here's someone, Moses. We read about Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith. Moses understood the seduction of the fallen world. 
because he lived in Egypt. Egypt is often compared to the world. He was the prince of Egypt. He understood the desires of this world. But look what the Bible says about Moses in Hebrews eleven, twenty-four. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Do you see it, my friends? Yes, sin is pleasurable, but it's only temporary. Only temporary. It doesn't last. It's fleeting. Moses looked to the superior pleasure. He looked to Christ. He looked to the reward. He looked to something that was eternal. Now, here's what the MacArthur Study Bible says about these verses. I'm quoting. Moses suffered reproach for the sake of Christ in the sense that he identified with Messiah's people in their suffering. In addition, Moses identified himself with the Messiah because of his own role as leader and prophet. Moses knew of the sufferings and glory of the Messiah. Anyone who suffers because of genuine faith in God and for the redemptive gospel suffers for the sake of Christ. End quote. So let me ask you this. Is there any hope? <laughs> is, is there something we can love? All right, we've talked, to, the Bible tells us in 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. But is there a proper way for Christians to love this world? Is there something in this world that we can love? Well, my friends, there is. So let's talk about how to love the world. Right? How to love the world. Just three practical points here. Number one, enjoy the world. Enjoy the world. Now, this enjoyment is rooted in two realities that come from Scripture. Okay? Number one, we need to understand God's creation is to be enjoyed. So in that sense, the world is to be enjoyed, God's creation. See, Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So the created world here is speaking in Psalm 19. It is a witness to God. Everywhere we look, the world bears witness to the Creator. Creation doesn't simply give us the vague impression that God is somehow out there somewhere, it goes beyond that. It does way more than that. In fact, if you read Romans 1, you'll see that creation actually points to very attributes and characteristics of God. It communicates real things about God. You say, well, how is that? Well, I'll give you a few examples. The roaring seas proclaim God's might. Towering mountains declare God's glory. The flowers are whispering the wisdom and the complexity of God. Everywhere you look, you ought to see God's attributes. Because creation is testifying of its creator. There's a second reality we need to understand here. Because creation is God's gift to us. Yes, it is declaring God. But 
God gave creation to us to enjoy. If you don't believe me, read Genesis chapter 1. See, in the creation narrative there, God, what did he do in the very beginning? He locates man in a place of rich provision and enjoyment designed specifically for mankind to enjoy. And it's interesting, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, it says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. And of course, we read in the Genesis account, God, after every single day of creation, God said, it's good. And then in the end, he says, it's very good. So creation's God's gift. It's also a witness. And so based on those realities, we are to enjoy the world. How to love the world? Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Don't worship it. But it's okay to enjoy it. Go for a walk. Go for a hike. Go for a tramp. Go camping. Whatever. You know, go fishing, hunting. Right? Get out there. Look at it. Stop and smell the roses, so to speak, once in a while and say, wow, God is amazing. Number two, not only should you enjoy the world, but you you need to be engaging the world. Engage the world. See, God's called us to get involved in this world. Jesus said, be in the world, just not of it. Don't, Don't let the world into you. After Scripture records the creation of man in Genesis 1, God issues the very first command in Genesis 1, verse 28. Here's what God said to them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That was God's first command. So you might ask, well, how can we engage the world? How can we do that command? Well, mankind's received the privilege here of filling, governing this natural world on God's behalf. You're God's manager. You're God's steward. Stewardship of the earth, by the way, includes not just simply the earth itself, but it includes the cultural possibilities that God's built into its natural order. God also built the family. God's the one who came up with science, commerce, technology, government, the arts. All that stuff is part of this world, and you're to be engaged in it. Subduing the earth is essential to our very humanity as God's image bearers. And by the way, it's an essential way that we can serve and glorify God. You can serve and glorify God in the arts, in commerce, in government, in the family studying the sciences, all those various things in God's natural order are there so that you can serve and glorify Him. So yes, how to love the world, number one, enjoy it. Two, engage the world. But number three, evangelize the world. Right? And and in this case, clearly God's talking about people, right? When the Bible talks about the in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his son, he means the people, of course. Jesus didn't come to shed his blood for the dirt and the animals and the mountains, right? Jesus came to shed his blood for people. He came to redeem people. 
So Christians, we have a privilege of being God's ambassadors in this fallen world. We're to be about the ministry of reconciliation. We're to be proclaiming to sinful people that the good news about Jesus Christ proclaim to them the way of salvation. They need to know the truth. Because Matthew 28, verse 19 says that God calls every single one of us as part of his church, his disciples, to make disciples. Are you doing that? That's your responsibility. We collectively and individually are to be making disciples. That's how you can engage this world. It's an appropriate way to engage and to love this world. So here's my proposition for you today, my friends. God wants you to not love the fallen world, but to enjoy his world, engage the world, and evangelize the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to these truths. Open our eyes to what's going on in our hearts. May we understand our hearts in a little way. May we see when we have let go of Jesus and our hearts are growing cold, would you reveal that to us? Would you cause us to repent of our our coldness toward Jesus Christ? May we not become drifters and deserters and conformers to this world. May we not be guilty of the sin of worldliness. But when we are, may we deal with that sin. May we encourage one another in this way that we would be in this world. We wouldn't become isolated from it, but we would not allow the world into us. We wouldn't love it and the things in this world. We wouldn't be conformed to it. But we would properly engage it in in the ways we've just talked about here. I pray that the word would have been faithfully proclaimed, accurately proclaimed, in ways that would be helpful to us. May your people be served. May we go from here remembering and meditating on these truths that we've seen in the scriptures, actively engaged in fighting sin and holding on to Jesus Christ, bestoking the fires of our love for him, May we find our identity in Him and not in the things of this world. May we fight sin by Your grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, with all of our might, humbly doing this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.